As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. If you had to pick one name of an individual who had the greatest influence on the comic book industry in the mid-20th century, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more likely candidate than Frederick Wortham. Wortham was not a cartoonist or a writer. Rather, he was a German-born psychiatrist who immigrated to the United States, and he would go on to pen a massively influential book named The Seduction of the Innocent back in 1954. In his book, Wortham put the blame for the downfall of America's youth firmly at the feet of comic books, which he said were all full of sex and violence that warped impressionable young minds. Wortham's book would go on to spark a U.S. congressional inquiry that would eventually bring about the creation of the Comics Code that for decades after dictated the sort of content that would be allowed in American comics. This caused a massive upheaval throughout the entire comics industry, Publishers scrambled to overhaul the comics they were publishing in order to make them meet the new Comics Code rules. Some publishers, like EC Comics, who had struck gold putting out violent horror comics like Tales from the Crypt, were nearly driven out of business. But long before Frederick Wortham wrote his most famous book, he was well-respected in the psychiatric field having made a name for himself ever since he joined the Phipps Psychiatric Clinic at Johns Hopkins University in 1922. He became renowned for his keen insight into the minds of the most mentally disturbed individuals. A decade later in 1932, he was living in Manhattan and serving as the senior psychiatrist at Bellevue Mental Hygiene Clinic. It was there that he first encountered a madman, unlike any he'd ever met before a gifted sculptor-turned-brutal killer who illustrated the fine line that exists between genius and madness. I'm Nate Hale, and my current art project is a scale model of Dealey Plaza built entirely out of tiny tinfoil hats. And this is The Conspirators. On October 27, 1932, just before 2.30 a.m., a 29-year-old man named Robert Irwin showed up at Bellevue's emergency room with his penis badly mutilated and a rubber band wrapped around the base. He was oddly calm despite his injury, and he explained to the attending physician that he had attempted to castrate himself with a razor, 
Then he begged the intern to help him finish the job. The doctor ignored the man's pleas and stitched him back together. Afterwards, he directed Irwin be sent to the hospital psychiatric clinic, where the following morning he met Dr. Wortham for the first time. Over the days that followed, Wortham managed to coax the man's life story out of him. He was raised by a devoutly religious mother, who christened him with the name Fenelon Arroyo Seco Irwin. These were all names that, according to Irwin, held special religious significance. Fenelon, for example, apparently referred to a 17th century French theologian named Francois Fenelon. When he was young, religion became the center of Irwin's life. Irwin's earliest memories were of being dragged to tent revival meetings, where the members of the church would speak in tongues and take part in faith healings with the fire and brimstone spouting minister. His father ran out on his wife and family when he was three years old, leaving them in a perpetual state of financial hardship. Their house was little more than a wooden shack with flour sacks stretched over the unplastered walls to keep the cold air out. Irwin's mother worked a series of low-wage odd jobs like laundry and seamstress work to support him and his three siblings. Life was difficult for the Irwin children. Meals often consisted of little more than buttermilk and stale bread, which was often obtained by begging for it from local bakeries. Medical care was unheard of, and as a result, Irwin's sister died of whooping cough at age two. Toys were something else that were out of the question for the children. That's why Irwin said he began using the bathroom soap to sculpt things, and it turns out he had a natural gift for it. Left with three sons to raise on her own and no idea what to do, Irwin's mother began consulting manuals on child-rearing for advice. One manual instructed her that parents should not treat sex as something dirty or mysterious, so Irwin's mother interpreted this to mean that she should begin bathing in the nude right in front of her three boys. In between constantly flashing her naked body at her children, Mrs. Irwin continued reading scripture to them. Young Fenelon Irwin was forced to read three chapters of the Bible each day and to learn a new psalm by heart every Sunday. Over time, Fenelon would become fascinated with the work of noted 19th century freethinker Robert Ingersoll, whom his mother considered to be a consort of the devil. That's the main reason Fenelon would go on to change his name to that of his idol, Robert. The newly christened Robert Irwin was nothing like his brothers, who were constantly running into trouble with the law. Robert did his best to stay on the path of the straight and narrow, and not follow in their delinquent footsteps. When he turned 18, he left his mother and entered a juvenile home, where a sympathetic aide encouraged him to pursue his artistic passions by providing him with modeling clay. Robert Irwin spent 15 months in the juvenile home, teaching himself to sculpt before finally hitting the road and trying to forge his own path in life. He found work in a Hollywood art studio for a while, before moving to Chicago and studying with another renowned sculptor named Lorado Taft. In 1930, at the age of 23, Robert found his way to New York City, where he began looking for any sort of work he could that related to his chosen profession. Over time, he would work as a clerk in an art supply store, then an assistant to master sculptor Alexander Edel, and even a brief stint as a taxidermist's helper. But even as his gifts as a sculptor grew, so did his mental issues. Robert was constantly having strange and increasingly violent fantasies in his head. 
terrible, sexual things that seemed to scrape against the insides of his skull like something desperately seeking a way to escape. In 1931, he voluntarily committed himself to the psychiatric ward of Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn. He told the supervising physician that if he didn't get some help, he was afraid he was going to kill someone. After three weeks at Kings County, he was sent to the Burke Foundation, a convalescent home in White Plains, where he remained as a patient for several months, eventually staying on and working in the cafeteria as a waiter. In the spring of 1932, he returned to Manhattan, although by now the Great Depression had hit society hard, and his dreams of finding another job in the art field were constantly thwarted. He was homeless for a while, resorting to living on park benches and begging for food on the street. He eventually found work as a dishwasher at a restaurant called McFadden's on the east side of the city. In October 1932, he rented a spare room in the home of a family named Gideon, who lived in Beekman Hill. There were four members of the Gideon family living under that roof at the time. There was the father, Joseph Gideon, a Hungarian immigrant who ran an upholstery shop downtown. His wife, Mary, an older daughter named Ethel, and Ethel's younger sister named Veronica. Veronica was the wild child of the family. At 18 years old, she had already been married and divorced once. She was pretty, and she found work posing nude for an amateur camera club and by posing as an artist's model for the Pulp Detective magazines. Many illustrators had used her as their model for the trussed-up damsels in distress in their paintings about lust killers and sex fiends on the prowl. In order to make ends meet, the Gideons frequently took in boarders. Robert Irwin had only been living there for a couple days when he decided, in order to relieve himself of his pent-up sexual frustrations, to lock himself in the bathroom and attempt to slice his penis off with a razor. Dr. Wortham realized that his new patient was a danger both to himself and to society. Irwin remained locked up in Bellevue for five months, at the end of which Wortham diagnosed him as being improved but not recovered. He talked Irwin into voluntarily committing himself to Rockland State Hospital, where he remained living until 1934. In May of that year, he returned to New York City where he worked a number of odd jobs including dishwasher, coat room attendant, and elevator operator. He also moved back into his old flat with the Gideons. Within days, he had developed a new obsession with the older daughter, Ethel, the more serious and sweet-natured of the girls. At first, things seemed to be going well for the two of them. Ethel appeared to enjoy his company, and they would sometimes visit the city's museums where Robert was able to talk endlessly about all things art-related. But Ethel's interest only went so far, and eventually began to wane. Robert became despondent over Ethel's rejection of him, as well as his inability to find meaningful work. He felt as if black clouds were looming over his head. Something terrible was going to happen. He could feel it, building up inside him. He went back to Dr. Wortham and told him what was happening. Wortham saw the danger signs all around Robert Irwin, and, fearing that he'd slip back into his previous ways, he urged him to commit himself again to Rockland Hospital. While he was a patient at Rockland, Robert had one incident where he flew into a rage and attacked a doctor who complimented him on the bust he was sculpting in the hospital's workshop. Yet, despite the outburst, and despite the doctor seeing no noticeable improvement in his mental state, in September 1936, Robert was discharged once again. One of the hospital's attendants thought that getting back to his religious upbringing could do a world of good for Robert, 
and he suggested that the young man apply for admission to the St. Lawrence Theological School in Canton, New York. Robert did so, and that's where he remained for the next six months. He continued to support himself with a series of odd jobs, such as delivering newspapers, mowing lawns, and shoveling snow. He eventually began making some extra money by teaching sculpture classes for adults and children at a local school. But by the spring of 1937, his increasingly erratic behavior got him fired. He headed back to New York City where he tried to get his old apartment back from the Gideons, only they informed him the room was already taken. He found another place a few blocks away that cost him $1 a night. For Frederick Wortham, the memory of his former patient was never far away. He was once invited to deliver a paper to Johns Hopkins Hospital for the 25th anniversary of the Phipps Psychiatric Clinic. The subject of the paper was violent crimes caused by aberrant reasoning under emotional complexes. Among the examples he used in his lecture was that of Robert Irwin. During his lecture, Wortham predicted that Irwin was almost certain to exhibit further violent behavior, either against himself or others. On March 28, 1937, Easter Sunday, Dr. Wortham's predictions came frighteningly true. In the spring of 1937, things weren't going well for the Gideon family. Joseph and his wife Mary were getting in constant arguments, many of them centered around their youngest daughter's scandalous behavior. Things grew so heated that eventually Joseph's wife kicked him out of the apartment. He began sleeping in a storage room in his upholstery store. Mary invited Joseph to join her and Veronica for Easter dinner as a conciliatory effort. They were also to be joined that day by their daughter Ethel, who was now married and living with her husband, Joe Kudner, in a little house in the suburbs. Joseph Gideon arrived at the house promptly at noon, armed with a bouquet of flowers for his estranged wife. He entered the unlocked flat, and what he found stopped him dead in his tracks. There he found his daughter Veronica's nude body sprawled on her mattress. His wife Mary's body was stuffed underneath the bed. Their boarder Frank Burns was found dead in the next room. He'd been murdered in his sleep from multiple stab wounds to the head. Joseph was still standing there ashen-faced when Ethel and her husband showed up a few minutes later. A police investigation revealed that both women had been manually strangled to death, while Burns died from the multiple stab wounds to his face. The medical examiner believed that the killer had used an ice pick for the murder weapon. The details of the case caused a media sensation. The tabloid headlines screened about the deaths of the gorgeous artist model found on Easter Sunday. Within a few days, the New York Daily News was devoting nine full pages just to the triple homicide. Most of the photographs were of Veronica, either semi-nude or dressed in a negligee. They had already unofficially promoted her from being just another artist model to being the queen of the crime magazine. Ironically, it would have been a huge boost to her modeling career if only she'd lived to see it happen. Of course, suspicion fell immediately on Joseph Gideon, the estranged husband who found the bodies. He didn't do anything to help his case either when he told the detectives that he despised his wife and wanted nothing to do with his tramp of a daughter. The idea that Joseph Gideon could have done it certainly wasn't out of the question. Strangulation is one of the most personal ways to kill someone, and typically indicates a deep-seated anger toward the victim. Gideon's upholstery work had given him unusually powerful hands that could have easily choked the life out of someone. And although one tenant of the building reported hearing some short, stifled screams coming from the home the night of the murder, 
Nobody reported Gideon's Pekingese barking at all, indicating the killer must have been someone the dog knew. Police searched Joseph Gideon's tiny room he'd set up for himself in the back of his shop. There, they discovered a substantial collection of sexy photographs in pulp girly magazines. When the newspapers caught wind of this discovery, they immediately began painting Joseph Gideon as a sexual deviant who flew into a jealous rage and murdered his wife, daughter, and tenant. Further rumors spread that Mary had been involved in a romantic relationship with Frank Burns, which only added to the potential motives for his death. They hauled Gideon into the police station for questioning, and there they held him for 33 hours straight of intense grilling. All the while, the tabloids were proudly trumpeting that the police had the killer in custody. One front-page article used a close-up photograph of the upholsterer's face, declaring above it the headline that these were the eyes of a killer. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. But while Joseph Gideon was being tried and convicted in the press, detectives were pursuing another potential lead. There was one odd clue found at the scene of the crime that they were all scratching their heads over. Back during the Great Depression, Procter & Gamble had begun heavily promoting a new pastime that became something of a nationwide sensation, soap carving. On the bedroom floor of the home, they found a bar of soap that had evidently been sculpted by the killer as he patiently waited for the final victim to arrive home. When they asked Ethel if they knew anyone who could have sculpted the bar of soap, she immediately named their former tenant, Robert Irwin, who had been in and out of mental institutions for years. Their suspicions only grew when they began reading Veronica's diary and learned that she had written about Irwin several times, and that she believed that the man was completely out of his mind, and she was terrified of him. Police canvassed the area, and it wasn't long before they found other witnesses who came forward and reported seeing Irwin in the neighborhood on the night of the crime. Detectives traced Irwin's steps back to the rooming house he had lived in while he was attending the St. Lawrence Theological School. There, they found a diary he left behind, in which he wrote, God, how I adore Ethel. Perfection. That's what she is. Absolute perfection. If only Ronnie and her mother hadn't interfered. It has made a shipwreck out of me. Girl of my dreams, can't you hear the still small voice in the night? Can't you hear me calling to you with the words of adoration on my lips and a song in my heart? Sex, it means nothing now. How I hate Ronnie and her mother for what they have done to me. After reading that, police were convinced Robert Irwin was their killer. Word leaked out to the press, and before long, Joseph Gideon was removed from the front page and replaced by sensational articles about Robert Irwin. Mad Sculptor Had Mania to Strangle was just one of the headlines. Despite the enormous manhunt that ensued, and newspaper articles plastering his photo everywhere, Robert Irwin remained at large for the next three months. In late June, 19-year-old Henrietta Kosciuszki, a maid who worked at Cleveland's Statler Hotel, was leafing through a copy of Inside Detective magazine when she stopped on a story about the manhunt for the Mad Sculptor. 
there was a photograph of the man they were all looking for. And boy, didn't he look a lot like an acquaintance of hers named Bob Murray, who had been working at the hotel for the past several weeks? Later that day, Henrietta bumped into Bob and asked him if he'd ever heard of this Robert Irwin fellow. Nope, never heard of him, Bob told her. That evening, the man emptied his locker and skipped town. The following day was June 26, 1937. A phone call came into the newsroom of the Chicago Herald and Examiner newspaper. It was one of the Hearst-owned tabloids, and the other Hearst papers from New York were still hot over the Robert Irwin story. The caller identified himself as Robert Irwin, and he volunteered to surrender himself for the right price. The paper offered Irwin $5,000 for his exclusive story. They hid the fugitive away in the Morrison Hotel, where, for the next 24 hours, he dictated his full confession to the city editor, John Dinehart, and a couple of reporters. The following day, the Herald and Examiner was blasting the headline, Irwin Surrenders, Confesses, Exclusive. Irwin was turned over to the authorities on Sunday, June 27th. He was flown in a Hearst-owned airplane back to New York and handed over to the New York Police Commissioner and the District Attorney. Once he was safely in police custody, the previously chatty Irwin clammed up. You can beat a confession out of me, he told the DA, but you won't make me talk. Irwin insisted the only person he would speak to was Dr. Wortham. On June 28th, the doctor was roused from sleep in the wee hours of the morning and rushed to police headquarters at just past 5 a.m. It was to Dr. Wortham that Irwin finally spilled his guts, giving a full confession to the murders of Frank Burns, Mary, and Veronica Gideon. Irwin said that he showed up in the Gideon's neighborhood on Good Friday. He spent the following day in a futile search for a job. He was hungry and desperate, his dark thoughts buzzing through his head like a swarm of angry bees. He was so depressed that he briefly considered drowning himself in the East River. He even went so far as to stand on the edge of the pier and stare out at all that enticing brown water. But then, as his eyes drifted over the rippling surface, he began to think about his lovely Ethel the girl of his dreams who spurned his advances, and of her horrible, slutty sister and their shrew of a mother who had driven them apart. It was their fault, he decided, all of them, and he would make them pay, especially Ethel. As Robert Irwin turned away from the river, he spotted a rusty ice pick lying in the gutter. He picked it up and put it in his pocket, and then he began strolling toward the house on First Avenue. It was just around 9 p.m. when he got there, only no one was home. Irwin told Dr. Wortham that he waited until Mary Gideon arrived. She looked tired and not particularly happy to see him. She asked him if he'd walk their dog, so he took the little Pekingese around the block and brought him back. Then he sat in the apartment and drew Mrs. Gideon's picture to kill some time. Frank Burns came home and Mary introduced him before he headed off to his room. By now, Mary was growing increasingly anxious to make Robert leave. He told her that he wanted to see Ethel. She kept trying to tell him that Ethel didn't live there anymore, but Robert said he wasn't going anywhere until he saw her. Finally, Mary blew up and ordered Robert to get out or she'd summon Frank to make him leave. That was when Robert launched himself at her. He punched her in the face, then wrapped his fingers around her throat and began to squeeze. He held on for a full 20 minutes until her thrashing body finally grew still. Then he let her drop to the floor. There was blood on his face and hands from where she'd clawed at him. He stared down at the blood in his hands like he'd never seen it before. Then he reached down and wiped some of it on Mary's face. 
and then he dragged her body over and stuffed it underneath a bed. He watched Mary's little dog go crawl under the bed and curl up next to its master. He briefly considered killing it, too, but he didn't have the heart to harm an animal. He went in the bathroom and washed the blood from his hands, then he turned off the lights and sat down to wait. At 3 a.m., Veronica came home and she walked right past him into the bathroom. When she finally emerged sometime later, Robert pounced at her, swinging a blackjack he'd improvised out of a rag and a bar of soap at her head. The homemade sap didn't seem to have much of an effect. He dropped it, then he grabbed Ronnie by the throat and began choking her. Veronica couldn't speak, but he still asked her where her sister Ethel was. He let up the pressure enough to let her sputter out that Ethel was married and didn't live there anymore. She begged him to let her go. She told Robert he was going to be in a lot of trouble for doing this, but Irwin was beyond caring. Purple and white spots flashed before his eyes. He bore down with his powerful sculptor's hands, crushing Veronica's windpipe until she was dead. When she was gone, Robert undressed her and dumped her body on the bed. Then he couldn't stand to look at her anymore. She was ugly, repulsive. He told Dr. Wortham that it was like blue death was oozing out of her pores, and he couldn't bear the sight of her. Even though both murders occurred only a few feet away from Frank Burns' bedroom, the Englishman never stirred once. He was still sleeping when Irwin went into the bedroom and got to work with the ice pick. Despite having gotten away with three murders, Irwin told Dr. Wortham that he still felt completely disappointed at the outcome. There was really only one person he'd been there to kill, and that was Ethel. And she never even had the common courtesy to show up. Really, it had only been Ethel he ever wanted to kill, he said, because she was the only one he ever truly loved. Two days after being extradited to New York, Irwin was indicted on three counts of first-degree murder. He secured the services of a famed defense attorney named Samuel Leibowitz. The prosecutors anticipated Leibowitz would try to get his client off on an insanity plea, so they went and convinced the court to appoint a three-man commission to determine his mental competency. The commission determined, without examining Irwin personally, that he was legally sane. At first, the tabloids applauded the ruling, declaring Robert Irwin to be some fiendish and brilliant villain who would have tried faking his own insanity in order to escape punishment. The tabloids even began taking jabs at Dr. Wortham before the man even publicly stated his own thoughts on Irwin's sanity or lack thereof. Leibowitz countered with his own panel of experts who did find Irwin both medically and legally insane. He managed to save his client's life by having him plead guilty to three counts of secondary murder during his trial in November 1938. Robert Irwin was sentenced to life in prison at Sing Sing. There, prison psychiatrists declared Irwin to be most definitely insane. On December 10, 1938, he was transferred to Dannemora State Hospital, where he remained institutionalized for most of the remainder of his life. He died of cancer in 1975 in Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. In the months that followed Irwin's conviction, there was a lot of public backlash at both the three-man commission that found the man to be legally sane, as well as the tabloid newspapers that were so quick to convict Joseph Gideon before moving on to their next target, Robert Irwin. All the criticism stung the Daily News' publisher, Joseph Medill Patterson, who only offered a single weak statement in his defense. Murder sells, he said, because we're all interested in murder. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. 
Thanks so much for listening. I need to give some shoutouts to my latest Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to Kathy, Greg, Robert, Helen, Molly, and Rachel. You're all superstars to me. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course our patron-exclusive minisodes. Another way you can help support the show is by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much every one of your favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Before we go, I want to play another quick clip about another show I highly recommend. Take it, Rob. What's up, Ufonauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Christofferson. Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't. Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust.